So I'm here with Dave Belt, and it is March 2nd, 2014, and I remember the last time, or realized the last time that we had uh, had an interview was on the 10th anniversary of, of uh, 9-11. That was two and a half years ago, so what have you been doing for the last two and a half years? Well, hiding out in uh, the Canary Islands. Slightly warmer than here? A little bit. You guys are pushing snow here on March 2nd. It's supposed to be spring weather. Yeah. And uh, Tenerife, we are running short sleeves. 50 degrees. Yeah, 50, 50 to but 60 that's, degrees. That's cold for you guys. According to the Spaniards, it is. Yeah. <laughs> for me, it's not. Now, you are with the team, mm -hmm. T-E-A-M, which stands for the Evangelical Amish Mennonites, right? Uh, oh, correct. <laughs> <laughs> the Evangelical Alliance Mission. So I was close. So last time um, when we I had my interview with you and, and Lois, we talked about a little bit about your background, uh, how you got into church planting. You mentioned then that your parents had been church planters or at least planted churches in different places that you had served on the mission field. So give us a quick, upgrade, a, a, a quick background on you as far as how you got into church planting and felt called to do that and how God sort of orchestrated your ministry that direction. When I was in ninth grade, I remember God... Uh, speaking to my heart about the possibility of doing missionary work in a cross-cultural setting. I enjoyed teaching, and uh, as I moved forward in life, it seemed like getting a teaching degree and doing something in the area of teaching would be a good start. So I did that, went back to Venezuela as a teacher at a school for missionary children, but very immediately started to get involved in a a church that was close by that, interestingly enough, my dad had helped to start many, many, many years earlier. But the church never had grown to the point where they were able to uh, have their own leadership, support a pastor. And so I, Lois and I started to go to that church on weekends. We were teaching at the missionary kids school during the week. And uh, we would go to this church on weekends and uh, took a group of kids from the school with us and just started doing pastoral work there with a goal of seeing that church grow uh, to the point where they would be able to, to call their own pastor. And that did happen over a period of about five years. Um, so you didn't start that church, but you really were instrumental in helping mature it and bring it along to the point where they could that's, be a, that's an, an equipping church. That's correct. And then when we were, the latter few years, we were at the missionary kids' school for 20 years. The latter five years about, another missionary man and I did, in fact, start uh, a church in a small town about an hour away from where the missionary school was at. And that church never completely got off the ground, but it was a small community, very Catholic, uh, dominated. But we did get some property and we're having regular meetings there as of when we left. And I've just never been able to go back and visit. So when we left a missionary kids school after 20 years, it was to go and be, to become involved in more of a full-time basis and church planning in Venezuela. And God led us to uh, a town in the central part of the country, very close to the capital city of Caracas, about an hour away, that uh, did not have a whole lot of gospel presence. It was a growing community, and um, people moving out of Caracas, kind of a bedroom community. And so that's where we started in um, 1998. And we're there for 10, uh, for 10 years. And during those 10 years, we established one church there that then established another church about two hours away and was eventually able to 
were able to start a church in the tribal area, the jungle area of uh, Venezuela amongst some indigenous people. So the church that you planted has become a church planting church. That's correct. And now what, what city was that in? That would be in Guatire. Venezuela. Venezuela, a city of about 150,000 people just to the east side of Caracas, about an hour east of the capital city. Yeah, ever since we went there, our objective was that this would be part of a church planning movement and wouldn't just be a, an isolated church. And that's something you have to start teaching uh, the believers uh, right as the church starts to come together. So they start getting a passion for that, start understanding that that's really uh, something that is very much modeled in the book of Acts and the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And so uh, that that happened. I can't say that we were all that smart at it. Uh, I, I think that what happened there is evidence in the book of Acts, too. Paul just, as the Holy Spirit led them from one place to the other, sometimes they had to leave because of persecution. That was not necessarily the case for us. But uh, the second church plant uh, there in Venezuela started because some people that had come to know the Lord, uh, I'll see this in Sulema, in the church in Guatide, they started sharing the gospel with relatives of theirs down on the coast, which was two hours away. And those people became believers. We started um, having Bible studies the middle of the week at this other town down on the coast called La Guaida, Catia La Mar. My commitment initially and the other missionary family was to go down there and do these Bible studies. That was about as far as my vision was at the time. And lo and behold, one of these new believers, after we'd been doing this for a little while, we encouraged them to come to the Guatita Church on Sundays to fellowship with us there. They were the ones that said, so when are you going to start a church here? This is where we live. And it was kind of like, oh, yeah, that would be a good idea. <laughs> and it wasn't that we didn't have a visit. It just seemed like there was so much to do in the town where we already were. But God was obviously in it. And so we were able to start the church in this other town called Katilamad. And eventually get them to the point where they uh, got their own leadership. They have now started another church. That was after we had left. But so they are part of a church planting movement. And then in Venezuela as well, the Guatita Church, the first one we were part of there, did uh, start a church down in the tribal area of Venezuela. And that's another long story. But, but you're not it. in Venezuela now. You're in the Canary Islands. So how did you get from Venezuela to the Canary Islands? All right. So. In the church that was started down on the coast of Venezuela, um, one man and one couple who were Spaniards but were living in Venezuela had been living there most of their lives, but they had Spanish documents so they could go to Spain and immediately start working. They, for economic reasons, uh, went to the Canary Islands from Venezuela and got there, met another probably two, two believers in the area where, where God just providentially led them. But there were no evangelical churches in this town called Santa Utsula, a town of 15,000 people on the northern part of the island called Tenerife. And so soon after getting there, they began contacting us. We were still in Venezuela, asking us, practically begging us to come and to be in a church uh, there in, in Spain on the, on the Canary Islands. They had a church probably 30 minutes away that they could have easily gone to. 
Uh, it was a fine church, good doctrine, but they wanted a church right there in the town uh, where they were at so they could have a gospel presence and a witness for the Lord right in the town of Santa Uzla. So we put them off for probably two years. They kept begging us, and they were so insistent that we finally said, all right, we'll come, and we'll see, we'll look. But please understand, we want the Holy Spirit to lead us. Just the fact that we're coming to visit doesn't mean we're going to end up in that town. We want God to confirm that. And so by meeting with some other pastors from some other churches that we had asked, uh, had arranged for previously, some like-minded, like-minded doctrinally, uh, they all confirmed that this was a totally necessary area and an area where we could start a church. So you've given your life the last uh, 15 years to church planning? That would as be far true. as your ministry. So you've almost been church planning as long as you were teaching at the kids' school. So yes, why correct. why plant churches? Why Of all the different ministry activities that you can be involved with on the mission field, from street witnessing to putting on puppet shows on the corner and uh, handing out gospel tracts, why start a church? Why, why has that been now the passion for the last half of your foreign mission field ministry? That's That's really what Christ said he was going to do. He was going to build his church. And so anything that we have been a part of uh, over the years had to be rooted in in the establishment of the church. Is there a theology behind church planting? What what are your theological convictions that lead you to be a church planter that govern that process? That could be a long response. I'll try to give a, a short one. The short one is that Jesus said he was going to build his church. And he uh, gave us as his followers the privilege of of uh, participating with him and following his leading in that uh, very important process called the Great Commission. And in the book of Acts, the story of the church, which is recorded for us after the fact, but it is very obvious that those uh, first century followers of Jesus understood what he meant by he was going to build the church. Uh, because through thick and thorn persecution, they made every effort to uh, share the gospel of Jesus and then gather the believers uh, into local settings. They understood, as we understand now, that there is a church in the sense that everybody who follows Christ is part of, of the church. But the New Testament also has the local church, uh, the local area where that group of believers uh, will gather for worship, for uh, studying the Word of God, and for being sent out into their community. And so from there, it's modeled in the book of Acts and the writings in the New Testament, uh, Ephesians being one of them, where it, it is just very specific about this is God's plan uh, that he has had all along, and now he's working it out uh, following the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. And so that's what uh, the theology is, because that's what God's heart and mind is, and that that's how the world is going to hear the message of reconciliation. You must have a high view of the church then. As far as the the theologically, you are committed to the, ch the church in the plan of God and the centrality of that in the life of a believer. Yeah, totally, and I think that's the calling of every believer. Uh, God wants us to be part of a local body of believers. God wants us to to 
uh, participate in corporate worship. God wants us to benefit from uh, the coming alongside one another and nurturing and encouraging one another and being of, of uh, uh, a spiritual and physical, emotional uh, encouragement to one another. So that's what God is all about. That's what we should be all about. So how do you decide when and where you're going to start a church? You look at a town and you look in the church directory, see if there's other good churches that you can compete with, or are you looking for a place that you can start a church where there's good parking and access to a Walmart nearby? How do you determine this is a good candidate for us to... How did you choose the two places you have started churches? We're obviously not in competition. And just my particular pastoral ethics would say, if there's a church there that is preaching the gospel, uh, I would, I would, I would use that as an indicator as to whether God would have us. That doesn't mean we can't go to somewhere where another church is preaching the gospel, the unadulterated gospel. But it would probably be in a church planning setting, uh, missions, uh, countries where there's just little access to the gospel. I'll just illustrate that in Spain by doing it this way. In in, in Spain, there's about one-fourth of one percent of people who are born-again believers. And so when you do think about where you are, are going to start a church, you probably should look for a place where there is not uh, immediate access uh, to the gospel. So when we went on a trip to to see what the opportunities were, that's why we did ask to meet with a group of pastors. And they were all, about 10 of them, from evangelical churches, and we just wanted to ask, is there a need or are you all able to take care of this on your own here? And if there is a need, where? And so the the issue of gospel access was important for us. For both of the places that you started a church, has it been in areas that were, for the most part, untouched by the gospel? Yes. So you're going Ven- to- Venezuela less so because Venezuela has had the gospel and uh, the Latins have responded to the gospel more readily than what is the uh, case in, in Europe, in Spain. But nevertheless, when we went to Tenerife, uh, our mission board team had worked primarily in western Venezuela. And the missionary kids school that we were a part of, for the most part, took care of missionary families in western Venezuela. We eventually shut down the missionary children's school. And one of the reasons was because there were not enough missionary families in western Venezuela to warrant having a missionary kids school there. It wasn't that the missionary families didn't want to be there anymore. Just that in western Venezuela, the gospel had been preached and a lot of churches were established. And in contrast, in the central part of Venezuela, up close to the capital city of Caracas, there was a great dearth of of gospel uh, presence. And so that did drive us there. It's not the only thing that would drive us, but it seemed like God worked very clearly through that. And in the case of Spain, it was a combination of these three individuals, which later there were actually five that believers that we started with, who begged, prayed, uh, wanted a church in their own town that would uh, be true to the gospel. And in this case, in the town of Santa Uzla, there was no other evangelical church, a town of 15,000 people. The other churches there, but none evangelicals? Catholic. Catholic church. But no evangelical, not even any other color of so evangelical when you stepped into those environments in venezuela and in the canary islands 
uh, walk through this process of, of what you do. You just you hang up a sign that says, we're now a church. Come join us on Sunday mornings at 1030. Or do you go out and do street ministry first? Do you, you buy the, you know, <clears throat> get a rock and worship band and send out flyers to the community? How do you go about opening the doors and getting a congregation of people to gather there and listen to what you have to say on Sunday morning? You buy a blimp. A blimp. And you, <laughs> and you drop a... <laughs> Hire somebody to write something in the sky. Gospel toys out of the blimp to the people down below. Break break down the process of, of what right. you do from, from step one. For openers, we have been committed from day one to have a gathering on Sunday. If nobody else came but us and the one or two or three people that we know, we, we, are, con- we are convinced that right from the beginning, there's got to be a regular gathering of the believers on Sunday for worship, for study of the word, for prayer, um, for equipping. And we have also been of the conviction that having a place to meet was important. Uh, it's understandable some places where the gospel is preached, that's not as possible, either economically or because it's not legal. But in, in a country where there's freedom of religion, uh, such as the case in Spain, and it was definitely the case in Venezuela, we did feel like having a meeting area right from the beginning was important. Not everyone in church planning looks at it that way. They would rather meet in homes first and uh, just slowly slide into uh, a public meeting area. But, but we did feel that was important and regular uh, corporate worship on, on Sunday and the preaching of the word. But we well knew that we weren't going to get very many people walking in off the street. Um, Your first Sunday might be half a dozen people. Or less, yes. And so we knew that we needed to go out into the community. And one of the ways in which we've described it is uh, to make gospel noise. I could use the word music, but I'm not very musical. Gospel noise for me is going into town and starting to interact with the people in the town and let them know that there is a group of people here that uh, have studied God's word, believe in God's word, believe in God, understand that salvation is only through Jesus Christ and just start hanging out with the people. Okay, That's what we would do during the week. We've also made a lot of use in, in the startup time with having teams come to do uh, activities that put a lot of people on the street. When we're all wearing the same T-shirt uh, with a bright color, that starts to draw attention. That doesn't mean that, that they really accept us. In Spain, uh, in particular, uh, we were considered to be a cult right from day one just because we're not Roman Catholic. Hmm. And so anything... That looks like religion that comes into town uh, in the Spanish context would be considered to be a cult. Um, so you need to prove to them that you're more than that. And so just through a lot of uh, specific, purposeful, strategic, prayerful interacting with the community. And there's just a lot of ways you could do it. In our case, over the years, it's included uh, doing activities that are, that, that uh Meet needs of families. The Canary Islands happen to be uh, a great place to do hikes. And uh, so we'll plan family activities and go on a hike. And we'll get unbelievers come with us. Not a lot, 
but we'll get two or three or four. And as that word of mouth starts going around, you get more. It could be something as simple as I'm a teacher. So I thought, well, uh, some of these kids and some of the parents would probably like some help with homework. And so once a week, we just open up the, the place where we meet as a church and invite kids. And we'll get 15 or so kids to come in. Some of them are believers. Some of them are not. We're starting to do something which lets the community know that we care for them. It could be a quilting class for ladies, patchwork type of an activity. These are all things to build relationships with people. Exactly. And you're earning in that way a hearing for the gospel. Exactly. And so we're making some gospel <clears throat> noise. Uh, it, we could just sit in the building and wait for God to bring in those whom he has called. And we understand that God has called him. But we believe that he wants us to go out and interact with the people as well. One of the interesting characteristics in Spanish culture, uh, the people like to hang out in coffee shops. They call them bars over there. But this is, uh, it's more like a coffee shop. It's a family-oriented environment. Alcoholic beverages are, are served there, but it's not a place where people are going to go to get drunk. And that's where Spaniards hang out. That's where you watch soccer games. You could just as easily watch the soccer game at home. That, in our term, would be like watching American football mm -hmm. or college basketball. It's soccer is, is king in Europe. And so instead of doing it at the home, you tend to go to those coffee shops to watch the soccer games. That's where you go to read the newspaper first thing in the morning. Uh, that's where you go to have business meetings. That's where you go with your family. That's where you'll celebrate a birthday party. And so that the Spaniards hang out in these coffee shops. And so it became very obvious that that was a place that God would have me to go. And, of course, as a coffee lover, it was easy mm -hmm. uh, to hang out in a place like that. But you start building relationships. Uh, one of the coffee shop owners uh, there in Santa Utsla also has a radio station. And he is not a believer, but he has been kind to us. Some of the activities that we have done with short-term teams and basketball activities he has actually allowed us to go on his radio station and do advertising. Hmm. He has had us come in and speak to the community from his radio station with some of these basketball players that we brought to town from universities uh, here in the United States and, and Canada. And so that's that's all of God's opening doors and walking through those doors. Uh, one of the other coffee shop owners is a sponsor of a local uh, wrestling team. Different wrestling than what we do in America. It's a genuinely local folklore, not folkloric, but a, a cultural way of doing wrestling. But this guy's the local sponsor. Well, we got to know him well enough. He found out that I like to go to these kind of wrestling matches. And so he's invited me to go with him. I mean, that is huge when the sponsor of this wrestling team is going to bring a foreigner who is known to be pastor a missionary into the wrestling match with him mm. god just uses that to break down some of the barriers and people then are going to be more willing to listen and then you share the gospel with them people get saved lives get changed now people are coming to the church and the church slowly grows in numbers what what process then do you have in place for maturing them because the goal obviously is to mature this group of believers to the point where they can take over their own leadership uh, take over the music ministry and begin to teach themselves. So what does the process of maturing these saints look like? What, what courses do you teach in that part of that maturing process? Well, it has to 
start with good Bible teaching, expositional Bible teaching on a regular basis on Sundays. You don't do topical series on oh, we how not. to have your best life now? We do not. We we start with a book in the Bible and we try to go New Testament, Old Testament, and make sure the Gospels are included in that, not just the epistles, and just methodically work our way through books of the Bible. In that kind of a context, I personally have the conviction that we should go a little bit faster than what we would probably do in a church here in North America. These people don't know the Bible. Have you been to a church in North America? You know how fast most people go through books of the Bible? I don't, but I know some that take five years in the book of Romans. And uh, that would not uh, work there because they need to know Romans. They need to know the Gospel of John. They need to know Isaiah. They need to know the Psalms. They need to know Revelation. They need to know how it all got started in Genesis. It's not that they don't have the Bible. We're mm-hmm. talking about Catholic countries, Roman Catholic mm-hmm. countries, who have had access to the Bible, but they have not been taught to, to read the Bible, so they don't know the Bible. So, so you're really gearing your teaching for what you're assuming to be new believers or very untaught believers. Correct, correct. And so with that, uh, some form of interaction between the believers during the week we felt is important. That's part of training. So for in the European context, small group studies and homes it works very well. That also uh, works very well and that that's a place where you can start getting some of the new believers to begin teaching God's word. Uh, small group Bible study is tended to be more. Let's talk together about the text. Let's make sure somebody understands enough about it. So if the discussion starts getting too much adrift. You can bring it, you know, back to what that passage of scripture is teaching. But it is a good way. So there's there's a man there in the Tenedifa church. He's a former bodybuilder. Uh, he got saved. Uh, he hangs out at the gym a lot. Uh, his name is David, same as mine. But I saw in him that there was a desire to study God's word, to learn God's word, and to communicate it. So in the small group Bible study that I'm leading, that he's a part of, his wife is a part of, uh, and so three or four other families and some singles. Uh, instead of me just teaching it all the time, I come alongside of David at some point in time after he started demonstrating spiritual maturity and say, David, would you be willing to lead? We're not talking about teach, just lead. Uh, help keep the people on track. I'll help you to prepare for it. Here's some good questions. It will help us to get to the main point of the text and we'll walk through it and we'll try to get some to some application. So that's how you start getting people involved. It's not the same as turning over the pulpit to them mm-hmm. and having them do an entire message. But they're starting to be in front of their people. They're starting to lead a study uh, in the Word of God. So that's one of the ways that you start getting yourself out of the way and getting the people, you know, into the into the leadership roles. But more specifically, we have we have done a lot of seminars. And uh, we will do seminars on very specific uh, biblical topics, such as the New Testament survey, Old Testament survey. Um, go through one of the epistles to help them understand. We particularly used Ephesians because that also talks in about the church. Um, and then also do seminars on ministry skills that will help them to to gain insight into how the church is structured and how to serve the Lord in the context of the church. Character development 
for a new believer is another important area. So some of the seminars that we will do will be specifically about uh, serving others, a very important element of, of character development. Some of the stuff, teaching geared at really the practical outworking of church life. You, exactly. know, you have you have folks who come to the church, they're brand new, they've never been saved, never heard the gospel, but they have heard some of the gospel noise that you talk about. Then they get saved, and uh, then over the course of time they mature and have become elders in the church. You you have that? This is correct. In Guatide, Venezuela, we started with a missionary team, uh, two couples, and there was one man that we had known before that lived in the area that uh, immediately became a part of the church. He had been a believer for a number of years, but had been going to a church in Caracas, and now he lived in Guatita, which is an hour and a half out of town, two hours, and so it was only natural for him to want to change churches, so to speak, just because of the geography. And we had known him for a period of time, and it was obvious that God would have him be a part of the leadership team right at the beginning. And that was all we had as an elder team there for the first four or five years. But as time moved forward, and other people came to Christ, and as some of these who were men matured in their understanding of Scripture and obedience to the Word of God, we started preparing them for, for eldership. My particular attitude toward training is you don't just train people that you think are going to be leaders. You offer biblical training, equipping to pretty well anybody that wants to participate. So I have never been in the habit of hand selecting those that would come to the seminars. We've opened it up to everybody, men, women, young people. The leaders will soon start becoming out of it. Their commitment for one thing to just being trained their commitment to doing homework assignments that we would give to them, their participation in the in the classes. And sometimes there might be people you, you never would have guessed. That's for sure. That's for sure. And that's why I prefer not to do the selecting myself. I know Jesus did it that way. <laughs> he was Jesus. Yeah. Uh, I am not. And so that's a model that we have used and that's worked well. By the time we left the Guatita Church, uh, after 10 years, uh, there was a team of uh, eight men we had trained uh, to serve. Were they all elders in the church? Yes. Yes. There were others that had other ministry leadership responsibilities, but those, that's what we left behind when we uh, moved from Venezuela to Spain. In Spain, we have had a missionary team that consists of three couples and one single. And so the three men have served as elders for the church in Santa Ursula. And the one man, Luis, who was part of the initial call for us to come from Venezuela. This man, Luis, we had led to the Lord and baptized in Venezuela. So when he went to Tenerife, as I referred to earlier, and did not see a church, an evangelical church in the town that he had moved to, Santa Ursula, it was really only natural for him to call on us. We had led him to the Lord. Mm-hmm. We had baptized him. We had trained him in ministry there in Venezuela. So... We didn't immediately call ourselves elders, but we were acting as a leadership team. We let the church kind of acknowledge that we were fulfilling, even us as missionaries, fulfilling the role of elders as, uh, you know, within a, a few years. We do not have any other men in the Santa Ursula church that are appointed as elders yet. That is a weak link. You're we, working that way. Though. We're working that way. 
There's some of them probably fit the biblical qualifications, but just have uh, work schedules that would not allow them to do pastoring. Any women candidates? Uh, no women candidates. <laughs> that's uh, that's not on the horizon because of biblical teaching and biblical correction. But, you know, we, we laugh about that. We have tried to be extremely uh, passionate about helping all of us understand what the role in the church mm-hmm. is for women. And God has used women in incredible ways through the history of the church. And there's there are plenty of opportunities for women to be involved in the ministry of the church. But because of the God-given direction about who should be leading the church, we uh, have stuck to that. That's not always popular. We have. It's not popular in Europe. Mm. Um, uh, at times we will be told, but there are women that have been so used of God in that. We say we acknowledge that. But in this church, we're going to follow the biblical conviction that men should be the ones that are serving as elders, acknowledging that there are plenty of roles within the church, even leadership roles uh, for for women, mm-hmm. but just not leadership at the level of the entire congregation. So Venezuela and the Canary Islands, they speak the same language, but they're not the same culture. Is that right? No, they're definitely not. So you've done cross-cultural ministry. And by cross-cultural, sometimes we just think cross-language. But cross-cultural is sometimes the same language, but different cultures. Um, We speak the same language as people from Seattle, but obviously a different culture in a big city as opposed to out in the country. Um, What are the – there are obviously parts of the culture in planning a church. There are things in the culture that might – dictate that the process or the timing or some of the things that you might do differently in Venezuela that you do in the Canary Islands? How do you how do you determine what how do we do this to reach this culture? And with that, what are the things that you do not compromise no matter what the culture says? For openers, Lois would comment that when we moved to Spain, this is the first time that she had felt like she was a foreigner. Uh, We were obviously foreigners and in Venezuela, just look at the color of my blue eyes and that would be known. But we had been raised in Venezuela. Both of our parents had been missionaries in Venezuela. So Venezuela was not foreign to us. Mm-hmm. Spain, uh, we had never traveled to Europe other than a quick trip to Italy one time before going to Spain. It was it was Europe. And, and it, it is it's an entirely different country. We had also been warned by some fellow missionaries who had been in Spain for a number of years that just because we spoke the language, to not presume that we understood the culture. So that was that was good advice. And another part of advice was, if you did something a certain way in Venezuela and you want to do it that way in Spain, you can try it. But don't tell the people, we did this in Venezuela, therefore we're going to do it in Spain. That's a little bit of arrogance. Um, plus, people in Europe know that, that uh, the Latin Americans have responded uh, quite readily to the gospel. And it's a little bit of an embarrassment to them that they've had, they've had the Protestant so presence long. in Europe for so long, and yet the church is just now starting to show uh, some signs of of, uh, of growth. So that, that was all good advice. So culturally, I think one of the things that became very apparent was that Europeans are not real interested in in establishing friendships with you. 
and contrary because because, because you're a foreigner or because you're yes just, yes they just don't like French right and in in Venezuela we were North Americans that in itself was a plus card in Europe it's like hey we colonized you guys hmm. uh, this is where you all came from so you really don't have a whole lot to offer to us now I realize they know that America is and Canada have lots to offer to Europe but that's kind of the mindset that's there that they were the ones that colonized this side of the globe and so we realized that we were gonna have to work on relationships in Venezuela they came rapidly you just start greeting people on the on the street uh, in short term bring a short-term team in into a town we've never been before and throw some recreational activity out there on on the, uh, the city plaza and you're probably gonna have 200 people turn out kids young people whatnot in Spain you might get three or four or five people turn out. So same it, amount of effort, the exact same thing. Exactly, exactly. So we need we knew that we needed to be strategic, and we need to make efforts to start and to build friendships. Um, and the other thing is that Latins are you don't need a whole lot of permissions. If you want to go out in the street and make noise, just do it. Everybody's doing it. So if evangelicals come and make some noise on the street, it's not too much different than what everybody else is doing. Spain is, is very careful about uh, any kind of a public gathering on the streets. It's not that you can't do them. You just need to go through the proper protocol. And once they find out that you're an evangelical group, you're probably not going to get permission right away. Um, but we begin asking for permission to use some of the public facilities, especially the gyms, that every town will have a basketball gym and a soccer field. And we were successful in getting permission to start using some of those places. But cultural sensitivity is, is, is totally important. And uh, we knew that in Venezuela. We became very much aware of that in, in Spain. So the thing that changes by culture for you guys might be how you present yourself or, or the assumptions that you make as far as how people are going to respond to what you do. Well, yes. For instance, in Venezuela, you could meet somebody and uh, just randomly and go have coffee with him. And pretty soon you could actually invite them to your home. If you invite them to your home and they agree to come, which they probably would, they would probably reciprocate very quickly and invite you back. In Spain, technically speaking, you do not invite people to your home. That's just, that's not the gathering place for social social activities. You invite them to the coffee bar? Yes. But you have to really know them well before you would invite them to your home. And even if they were to accept an invitation to come to your home, they would probably not reciprocate and invite you back into their home. Hmm. So if that's the case, uh, there's no need unnecessarily offending people just because you're a crazy foreigner that doesn't know the culture. Yeah. The gospel is going to bring offense. But let's not let our Americanism uh, bring offense. If we can work at that. Sometimes we just assume too much of people and how they're going to respond to us and that uh, they understand us the way we would wish to understand them. Mm-hmm. It's true. What, uh, regardless of culture, anytime you plant a church, you're going to deal with certain issues, dangers to the flock, challenges. Um, what have you seen as far as things that affect and try and attack the church? in Venezuela, in the Canary Islands, what type of theological dangers or dangers to the flock, to the ministry, 
have you faced and are you facing? The gospel needs to be clearly understood. That is always a critical issue. Uh, the gospel is three-dimensional in the sense that it is past tense, once and for all finished. When I received the righteousness of, of Christ on his merit, not on mine, it's once and for all finished. But the gospel is also about living today and the power of the Spirit of God. And the gospel is all about the promises of God for what's coming in the future. And so I think when we go into an area, we need to clearly preach the gospel uh, as a past, a present, and a future tense. All part of the genuine relationship that we have with Christ. But I think we also need to differentiate, differentiate between what is religion and what is relationship with Christ. And in particular in, in Catholic background countries, that is an issue that's, that we're always going to face in church planning. Because the presumption is we are just offering a different religion, slightly tweaked. And we have to work hard to try to make sure that traditions don't drive us, but that the relationship with Christ and that that's what we are clearly, consistently uh, demonstrating and articulating. From there, I think, uh, the sufficiency of scripture that um, what we have is what God has determined we should have and that he knows what he intended to communicate through the human authors and that it is our responsibility to thoroughly study and seek to understand what God's purpose is and what he communicated not just what I want it to be and lamentably within Christendom uh, the gospel has suffered a lot because people given their own preconceived uh, conclusions about uh, various biblical texts and themes in the Bible. And so we pretty quickly run into some of those other theological grids. Um, and almost, well, I would say without fail, they all point to the sufficiency of Scripture, the inerrancy of Scripture, that this is what God has given to us and there's no more revelation. Um, God is going to speak to us through the circumstances of our life, but he's going to speak to us through his word. Mm -hmm. He's not going to speak through us through some other revelation. And the deity of Christ, uh, the atonement of Christ. Uh, We're talking now about cults. And, yes. Uh, so our attacks. experience has been, well, even cults, but even other colors of Christianity that uh, will put emphasis on something that God is going to give to us. A mm -hmm. uh, second blessing, some kind of additional baptism, some kind of external manifestations. So to be, to be specific, because you know me and I don't want to offend anybody anytime, <laughs> anywhere for any reason. So we can get into some specifics like, are you dealing with charismatic issues in, in these churches that, uh, that you start? Even though you're an evangelical church, you're obviously not charismatic in your theology. Do you have charismatic theology that tries to creep in through the back door? Yeah, very specifically. Um, we generally do not have a whole lot of people who claim to be Mormons or people who claim to be Jehovah's Witnesses showing up at our church services. They may show up at our doorstep, 
mm-hmm. because that's part of their evangelism mode to go house to house. But you do have people with charismatic theology oh, showing up with in the church. Charismatic theology. One of the unique differences in Venezuela compared to Spain is that in Venezuela, once they pretty well figured out what persuasion we were, what theological grid we were coming from, they tended to not come back. But Spain, they keep coming back. You can't shut the door on them. Uh, I think most of them are genuinely born again. You want to have fellowship with them. If, if they're that standoffish because of the culture, why why don't they? You would think that that would play over into the church, that once they realize, well, we're not in the same camp with these guys, that would be just another reason they would keep you at arm's length. Right. But I think there's, I, I think there is a, a reason. And the reason goes back to the fact that theology drives our action and even drives our activity as a church. And so what we have observed is that some that come, uh, obviously we're there to see people come to faith in Christ that do not know Christ. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Canary Islands have historically had a lot of relationship with Latin America, which means there are a lot of Latin Americans. Uh, and we are happy when they come to know Christ. We very specifically are trying to make sure the gospel is getting to Spaniards, people that have lived there all their lives. Um, so our, our first desire is that people come to faith in Christ. But if somebody's going to come from another church, we understand the difficulties. You don't get along in the church. And here in America or Canada, you can, there's probably another church close by. You can walk go to. across the street. Exactly. Yeah. But there, that's not necessarily the case. And these are some people that, for one reason or another, have had a difficulty, didn't like something that went on. And so they still want to have fellowship. They still want to be a part of a body of believers. And so they come. And my my attitude is always kind of, okay, so is this the first time you've been in a church of this sort? They say yes. Lots of big welcome. If they say no, we have been to other churches. I say, okay, good. We've divided three others. Oh, yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> Just go back to that church and be a blessing. When they keep showing up, sooner or later you start finding out about them. And, and so what I think happens is that, and they've told us this, that in, that in the church that we've been a part of there in Santa Utsula, they see expository preaching that calls to them. They see the word of God being taught responsibly and consistently in the way it was written. They see transparency in leadership. They see integrity in financial issues. Financial reports are given. Uh, they've told me that they have not seen financial reports like that in other churches they've been in. I don't know if that's the case or not. Hmm. But they they like that that integrity and, and with finances. They like the fact that it's obvious that this isn't just about the pastor. Interesting phenomenon in Spain. Most of the evangelical churches of yesteryear are called, even though they have a church name, they're called by the name of the pastor, the current pastor. So the church here in Kootenai would be called, this is Pastor Jim's church. Oh, I see. Now, that probably is just to differentiate it from Pastor Bob's church. Okay, instead of going with the whole long name of the church, Kootenai Bible Church or something like that. But I think in the background there is because it was Pastor Jim's church. And they suddenly realized, oh, this isn't a one-man show. There's the opportunity to serve the Lord here. 
And there's freedom, there's trust, there's not control. And see, those are some of the issues that come in the Pentecostal charismatic area. Mm-hmm. And they they like the freedom that comes with with that not being the case. And yet they want to transplant and impose. Interesting. They want the to take theological the theological grid. They want to take the theological problems that created that yes. nonsense that they fled and impose it in your in your environment. That's that's my take on it. Yeah. So we have to be zealous. We've had to be more specific in our uh, written form of the doctrinal statement. I mean, our teaching is going to stay the same anyway because if we're teaching through Corinthians, it's going to be what the Bible teaches. How aggressive do they push these these, these theological agendas? You get some folks that show up and they say, well, it's not what we wanted. It's not what we are used to, but that's what uh, that's that's what you guys are offering. So we'll just sit here quietly and, and hold our noses. At the beginning, at the beginning, they were quiet, but then later they start articulating. They want you to adjust. Yes. Yes. And so do you, do you allow folks into positions of leadership who have some of these theological issues? Supposedly, no, because they should sign off on our uh, the church's written. Uh, doctrinal statement what it's forced us to do it's a good thing actually is our doctrinal statement is much longer than what has been my experience in other churches Mm -hmm. because we've had to provide some of the specific interpretations of some biblical passages uh we're talking about eternal security um a subject like that why does hebrews seem to teach on the surface that you can lose your salvation. Right. Well, there's a context, there's a contextual reason for why the author of Hebrews was writing to the believers, uh, almost in a way that it sounded like they could lose their salvation. When you understand the context of Hebrews, you realize it's no. Well, something like that is probably not going to show up in many doctrinal statements. Mm-hmm. But yours it does. But we have found the need to include that kind of uh, articulation, even a written form in a doctrinal statement, so at least the people know in writing. Yeah. And from there, we're willing to talk. Uh, the, the, our, our missionary team has determined that we are not going to settle for the fact that we have always believed this way. And, and therefore, that's it. We have gone back to the scriptures. That's been a good thing. The elder team has methodically reworked through the same scriptures to confirm uh, what we feel scripture is teaching on some of these issues. But it's a challenge because then. One of the particulars we, we've had, and I say this carefully, a prayer meeting will show up in somebody's house. I'm all for prayer meetings. But when you find out that the only people invited were the ones that have that theological persuasion, then you start asking, what, why, were they, why were they starting that prayer meeting? Uh, and when they don't come to the prayer time at the church building, why are they having their own prayer meeting over there and not participating in the prayer time mm-hmm. with the rest of the body of believers? So some of those issues start becoming interesting, requires patience. The servant of God needs to respond with truth, but with gentleness. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's sometimes a challenge. So you, uh, not only charismatic theology and just as an aside, how big is word faith theology? Word of faith theology, prosperity gospel, has that really made inroads into the Canary Islands is a big thing? You find people drawn to that where you're at? Yeah, it's there. It's imported. It's not native to Spanish culture. It's come out of Brazil for the most part, Puerto Rico. Um, 
this day and age of media, television, and radio, it's easy for it to show up. Is that is that what they see as the face of evangelicalism in North America? Yes, because that's, that's what they get off the television. Television. Yep. So we've had plenty of that, and of course, uh, that runs hand in hand with charismatic yeah. theology. It's unfortunate, but it does. Mm-hmm. And it sounds good that God wants all of us to be healed and all of us to be wealthy and healthy. Uh, it's not biblical. It's not biblical. It's material. Mm-hmm. It's an emphasis on the here and now. And we know that God has promised to take care of our needs. And he does providentially take care of our needs. But God has not told us that every one of us is going to be free from infirmities or that every one of us is going to have every uh, material item that we might think is important for us. So you have charismatic theology that has tried to creep in, uh, even made somewhat inroads into into your church just among the people. What other type of theological threats do you have? Let me just make one other comment. In a sure. small church, if you have 60 people attending, which is pretty well what you have on Sunday morning, 60 to 70, that includes children, so there may be 40 adults. If you have three people or four people or five people, that... It's 10% of your church. It is. And, and so it's... They're important issues. They deserve to be heard. We, we we try to communicate readily that it's not just the elder team, it's not just the men, it's not just the pastors, it's not just the missionaries that have the understanding of Scripture. God has given the same Word of God. He's given the same Holy Spirit to every one of us. And so let's listen. We're not just going to immediately throw them out the window. You know what they're going to say. Mm-hmm. But you have to take time. And hopefully by taking time, you're going to gain some of them to come to correctly understand. Uh, and that has been the case. There's, there's one man who he and his family came from another church. I was nebulous. They were at everything, all the equipping, training, every activity we had. And so we started to gain confidence in them. But I was unwilling to give him a preaching role until I was convinced that he uh, was going to be faithful. Uh, to the word of God on some of these issues. And he has admitted that when he first started coming, he was way off course. But by by coming under the teaching of the word of God, he has understood that he was in error. He's come around and yes. abandoned some and, of that? Yes, so that was, that was great. Other issues, um, the tendency for uh, the social component of the gospel to become... Front and center. But I mean social gospel, the way we use the term social gospel. Yes. You're not talking about fellowship, you're talking about right. we need to be feeding the poor. And right. And so I will state here in front of the audience, I believe the gospel has a social impact. I don't think God calls us to change culture. I think as people come into a relationship with Christ, if there's something in their lives that's not biblical, God will take care of that, and that will have an impact on culture. Mm-hmm. One very evident area is, is integrity in the lives of, of people. We live in a world that is just uh, so uh, contaminated with untruth, with with lies in the business world, in school, in the home. And uh, sometimes it's almost part of the fabric of a culture. But our business is to teach the gospel preach the gospel, have the people understand their responsibility before God. And if God calls them to change something, 
then it's going to be because he did it, not because of the church. Mm-hmm. If it's the church that said you need to change this, then we're starting to walk down the line of religion. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the, so the social gospel, the church is going to have an impact on society. And I think the church somehow needs to find a way to demonstrate the compassion of Jesus. Uh, Jesus did weep with those who were weeping. And there were genuine physical needs that people had during the time of Jesus that he was, he took the time to take care of. But Jesus understood, put food in their stomachs and have them not know God isn't any forward progress. But if putting food in their stomachs will help them to listen to the message of Jesus, then there's an opportunity to to somehow see how you're going to represent the compassion of Jesus to people. But the gospel has to be in front. Mm-hmm. And that's so that's one of the challenges. How much do you get involved in social activities in the community? There's lots of them which we could be involved in. I mean, there are orphans and there are women who are facing abuse at home. And um, there are people unemployed and don't have money to pay their bills. Uh, so I don't think that's the front stage for the mm-hmm. church. But I think if the church in any given area can pinpoint some way in which they can show the compassion of Jesus to the community, that that then opens doors for the clear pro- proclamation of the gospel. And typically social gospel means we take the gospel on to the end of our activities, hoping that we can maybe mention it Eventually, if we get around to it, and oftentimes that's the first thing they get dropped off the back end. Exactly. Yeah. Because we're afraid that we're going to offend. Right. If we. Yeah, yeah, folks, leave the church when you won't bend to Arminian theology or change your philosophy of ministry or your approach to evangelism or your your view of the gifts. You people just walk up and leave. Yes. We had it happen to Venezuela. Uh, Venezuela, we had one man who espoused charismatic teaching. And he was actually in a small group that met, in a small group Bible study that met in our house. And he and I had lots of discussion with the issue outside of even that. And he knew that he should not, that he was not going to be doing that in a teaching role. But outside after the church service, we were running probably 200 people at this point in the church. He was out there in the parking lot. Promoting his theology. Exactly. And I think he personally got convicted of that and realized it was not right. He came and talked to us as leaders and said, could I at least present to you what my biblical position is? We said, sure. And we'll sit down and talk about it. And we did. We had a great discussion, uh, bounced things back and forth in written format. And eventually he realized he should leave, that it would be wrong for him to stay there and behind our backs as leaders mm-hmm. to be promoting a theological uh, grid that. That's you know, good. That, yes, that was totally the right thing for him to do. In Spain, uh, there was one couple. We were in their home. We had a small group Bible study in their home. We're actually, uh, with several other couples, Lois and I, had a great fellowship in that home. We were being very transparent with one another. Our prayer time was genuine. We were being very honest about needs in their own lives, uh, several couples that were together in that Bible study. And it, it was just, it, it was, it was lovely. It was beautiful. It was what, what the church is supposed to do, uh, you know, the coming together as one another's. 
but they did have some charismatic background and they during the summer when we quit having the Bible study they started having their own prayer time that's all right but the prayer time soon led uh, to one kind of an activity and another and when the fall came again and it was time to crank up and do the small group Bible study I asked them if they wanted us to come back and do it in their home they said yes here's the comical part they said we'll have our study at five o'clock in the afternoon <laughs> And then you can come at seven and continue with the study that you were doing before. I said, no, I don't think so. I said, if that's what you want, God bless you in that. You pursue it. But I'm not going to force you uh, to do something that obviously is not your desired. And so they left. Uh, a couple that have a lot of potential. Uh, they left the church. And uh, two single, two ladies. I went with them. They haven't been back to church to the Santa Ursula church mm. since that time. They went to another church and the pastor of that church actually had Lois and I over for a meal shortly afterwards. And this couple had probably only been there for a month. And the pastor in that church said, so can we put them to work? I said, you can, but I'd probably get <laughs> a little bit of time. He's only been with you for a month. Uh, this couple, I'd probably find out Take a little time to find out a little bit more about them. And uh, if you feel from there that they are worthy of your trust, go for it. Of course, I knew that they had the same doctrinal mm -hmm. uh, persuasion. You knew you'd find out. Yeah. So we've had that. Um, there have been others that have left for similar reasons. So my last question for you is how, as a missionary, your, your goal is to really work yourself out of a job as a church planner. You want to church, plant a church, raise these people up to maturity so that there would be leaders there, elders, some of whom are preaching and teaching and leading and counseling the flock themselves, grounded in the word, solid men, doctrinally sound. And then your goal would be to step back out of the spotlight and move on to the next church planting or to retirement or whatever that means for you. So how do you lead a church like that when you know, they know, everybody in the leadership knows that you're a short-termer? that you're not going to be around forever. It's one thing to be able to give vision and leadership to a congregation of people when they have the confidence that you're going to be there for 10 or 15 years. But how do you, what are the unique challenges of dealing with these theological issues and challenges in the church when somebody might be thinking, well, I can just keep my, my aberrant theology off to the side knowing that Dave's eventually going to leave and I can then kind of step into the, the spotlight. There's, there has to be some unique dynamic there in leadership that is a challenge. As a short-termer, hey, how do you deal with that? Well, for openers, Jesus was a short-termer in terms of his physical bodily presence mm -hmm. on this earth. He understood. He knew better than any of us do uh, how he was going to entrust the gospel to this mangly group of, of people that were professing to be following and yet just shortly before he gave his life on the cross, they're still arguing about who's going to be the greatest. So Jesus understood that dynamic. I think we see that all throughout the book of Acts. Those that were involved in church planting, uh, the Apostle Paul and others, Barnabas and so forth, uh, understood. And so it's a little bit like walking on a tightrope. You know that you need to start delegating and entrusting to people that have been faithfully trained and have started to show um, 
obedience, but there's a certain amount of fear and trembling. Uh, not because they're going to mess up my church. Uh, Lois and I have been extremely careful uh, with with leaving the impression that it's our church. And even that is beneficial for the local body of believers, for them to know it's their church. It's their church in the sense that they're the ones that are there locally. It obviously is uh, the church belongs to, to Christ. And so I, I have not even liked to use titles. I don't like to be called pastor. I, I, I appreciate the respect that comes with that. But I prefer just to be called one of them. And so they figure in Spain, they figured out a different title for me. They call me the equivalent of sir, because I won't let them call me pastor. They call me a word in Spanish for sir. It's the word don, like don in English, but don. Um, so I think it, it, for a missionary church planter, and it's not just a North American missionary church planter. This would be if you were a Korean church planter doing church planting in Africa. Or if you were a Latin American church planning doing church planning in Pakistan, <clears throat> if there was opportunity to do that, you you need to be strategic right from the beginning. And you need to look at ways that you can start delegating. And somebody had set a good pattern for that is, you know, come alongside of me and see what I do and and take notes, observe. And then I'll let you start. You know, I'll train you for it and I'll let you start doing it and I'll observe. And then eventually you get out of the way. So we literally need to get out of the way. And that is a little bit different than a pastoral role in a, in a church that's going to be there and the pastor's probably hoping to be there for a long time. I personally believe there's great benefit in men like you, Jim, being, uh, in uh, a body of believers for a long time. But in our case, we need to work right from the beginning at, uh, stepping out. It is not a magical number of years. It, it's more upon how God has has brought the church forward, and they're in a position where they can where they can be entrusted those responsibilities. It's not necessarily about them having a salaried pastor. That may not be mm-hmm. a possibility because of economics. But I would say some of the distinguishing characteristics are you need to start getting men into the preaching role and the teaching role of some sort. Um, you need to have people from the congregation that are starting to handle the children's teaching, the youth. Uh, worship is an important area. Worship is, is so important because doctrine comes through worship. Mm-hmm. And it's not just whoever is the best musician. They have to be somebody that can pastor the, the church even as they are leading worship. And so those are some of the key areas. Administration, obviously, but that's an easier one. Uh, once you can get some of the believers that are responsibly leading in those areas, then you can start thinking about moving aside. And in our case, it's always been to start a church somewhere else. In Venezuela, we stayed for 10 years in the one church, but we never physically moved away when we started the second church. The second church was close enough by, two hours away, that we could come and go. And so we never did physically make the move, even though we were a part of that other uh, church plant. The church that we started in Venezuela that then started a church in the jungle area, we never went to the jungle area. We were not allowed because of our North American passport uh, to go into the jungle area of Venezuela. That's a long political story. 
I so wouldn't go into. You're really just trying to replace yourself. Yes. There as quickly as you can. Yes. Good. Well, thanks, Dave, for taking the time, and hope God continues to bless you as you work with the Evangelical Amish Mennonites. Yeah. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs>